Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. Today's guest was playing the Phantom when the West End went dark. He's worked extensively in Australia where he trained at Federation University near Melbourne. Since graduating in 2006, he's starred in shows including West Side Story, Cats and Beautiful, the Carol King musical. He joined the West End production of Phantom of the Opera in the title role last autumn, and he hopes to return to the role when the show eventually reopens with a brand new physical production of the brilliant original. Here's my conversation with Josh Pitterman. I've seen on your Instagram, it looks like you're somewhere very nice at the moment. I just got back from Cornwall, devastatingly, just got back from delicious Cornwall. We were in Newland and Penzance. I am the pirate king. I felt like I had to be a pirate of Penzance. Sure. I thought that's a campus place ever, but it's not really that camp. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, that British coastline there is just stunning. It's like tropical. It seems. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Anti-British in some way. I know. I know. Whenever you see pictures of it, you're like, is that, that can't be really? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. It is also like five and a half hours away. Yeah, yeah. So basically you are going to like a foreign country almost. I was basically in Australia. Yeah. Were you there for like the whole of lockdown or was it just sort of a post lockdown thing? No, no, I was just literally there for a week. Just staying with my partner's friends and her parents. Oh, very nice. Um, that was our bubble. It was, it was really nice. It was just a good getaway. And I've really been in London for the whole of uh, lockdown. So apart from a, a quick trip up to Edinburgh to be with my partner's family. So not that I don't love London because I do. It just, you know, needed to get out. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand. How was lockdown for you? I think I've said this a fair few times in different ways. I think it's just been an extreme polarity of emotion and feeling from that great sort of joy of having life slow down a bit and being really grateful and appreciative for some really simple things, time with the person I love, time to call my friends and family back home who I didn't get to speak to as much when I was doing the show, time out in nature, time to reflect all of that, which has been beautiful and I'm sure a lot of people feel that way and then on the other side you know the whole situation with theatre in London is is devastating but more importantly you know watching the news and seeing people losing their loved ones and seeing people ill and the dire situation the world is facing you experience those extremes and that would be fine if it was like I mean it's shit but it would be fine if it was like over a four-week period but sometimes it was over like a four-minute period And so it's just that bouncing from extremes, which I think is the most challenging, trying to find some sort of middle ground and stillness and perspective in the middle of two extraordinarily different experiences. Obviously, the main thing I want to talk about today is the Phantom of the Opera, and we'll get to everything that's happened in the last four weeks shortly. But I want to start by hearing about your experience with the show in the good time. So can you tell me about your first experience of Phantom of the Opera, whether that was as a fan, as a theatre goer or in the show? Yeah, sure. So the first experience I had 
with Phantom was 2006. I was just about to graduate from college from doing a music theatre degree and it was the first show I auditioned for and I auditioned for RAL and I got right down to the end, last maybe four, and I didn't get it. Sadly, none of us in the last four in that group got it and it went to someone else who'd done it before. But what was really great is that those four gentlemen, myself, Chris Parker, Alex Rathgaber, who ended up playing it, uh, playing Raul in the West End in 2007, eight, and a guy called Matt Robinson, all became really close friends out of it. We gigged together a lot, lots of corporate stuff, concert stuff, have remained the most beautiful of friends. And it all really started from that experience. So that's sort of cool. So that was my first experience with it. I auditioned for it again in 08 for a, the continuation of that Australian tour to cover Raul and Phantom and actually got the gig but couldn't get out of the contract at the time. So that was disappointing. And then first time I saw it was 09. Um, I saw that production. Then I saw it again in 2012 when my very good friend Anna O'Byrne made her West End debut playing mm-hmm. Christine. And then I sort of didn't know what was going to happen with that show. It's a show that I've wanted to do since I was 17 and got into musical theatre. And I had a very fortunate occurrence where a clip of me singing Ness and Dorma at the Sydney Opera House was sent across to the casting director for Phantom of the Opera. And I happened to be coming to London and, and they just wanted to see me for it. And through a series of auditions and back and forth things from Melbourne and London, I got the gig. And it was beyond the dream coming true. It was so magical. And that's not just because of the role. It was because of the people you know, the the creatives, the cast, the company. There's something very special about that time at Her Majesty's Theatre and it was the most profound and rewarding and fulfilling theatrical experience I've had by a long, long, long way. So you and the show circled each other for like a decade before you actually ended up doing it. That's amazing. Yeah, maybe more, almost 15 years, yeah. If you were in Melbourne or between Melbourne and London, did you do a final audition in London or was it all done over tape? No, no, no. All my auditions were in London. Okay. So tell me about your final audition. My final audition was awesome. I mean, I, I had worked so, so hard on the material. I'd come back and forth and, and uh, with the creatives and um, they, were, they were very, very, very specific about what they wanted in my final workshop, which was maybe 10 days before my final. And as soon as that workshop finished, I wrote down everything very clearly and just went to work on doing what was required. And about maybe five or six days, maybe a week into doing that, I was like, okay, I've been doing this work so much. This is really in me. I can really trust my work now and just go in there and showcase that. And they were just really happy with it. Like it was just so positive. And uh, because I wasn't there when the final finals happened, I had to go back to Australia. They filmed that for Andrew and Cameron to watch. But the creatives and the casting people in the room, and they, they were all just so, so positive. And I, I felt like I did my very best work on the day, and that's all you can do. And I felt like I stuck to some of the things as a performer that I find really challenging, and I think all performers do, which is like to not go in there for a job. And it's sort of Brian Cranston take, and I really thank Brian Cranston for um, this 90 seconds of audition advice that he has on YouTube, 
where he says that so many actors go in there looking for a job when what they're supposed to do is, is give the most compelling version of whatever material it is that they are providing on that day. And I felt like I really did that. I did a compelling version of the most compelling version of Phantom that I could conjure up on that given day. And that was enough. And that was really great that that was enough. When did you start in the show? I started on stage. My opening night was September the 9th. Okay, so October, November, December, January, February. So like six months by the time that we went into lockdown. Yeah. That's not a long time to bed in, is it really? Uh, yes and no. Like it's still like well over 150 shows and it depends where you are, mate. Like in, in, in the UK or Broadway, you might think that's not a long time. Lots of shows in Australia don't run for six months. True, true. But in terms of like getting into the swing of it and, and, and really enjoying it, did you find did you feel like you you were you were well in, into it by that point or Yeah, yeah. Or did it still feel new? Okay, it's sort of it's sort of mixed. I never didn't enjoy it. There's not a time even when I was having a bad day or was sick or whatever, I can always look at it and go, This is effing magic. But it probably wasn't until the new year where really from January the 1st until the, the night before lockdown or the day before lockdown, I didn't have a break. So I just, I just went straight through. So I was in a really good rhythm, really good run, just eight a week consistently. And I felt like I was in that. It's in the doing more that I find it more fresh. For me, it's the opposite of a lot of people. It, it makes it more fresh because I feel like I have the opportunity and the trust and the groundedness to go, okay, it's time to play. I'm going to play with this, play with this. So it was seeming very fresh and enjoyable at that time. So tell me about the shutdown. So the the last performance was the 14th of March on the Saturday and on the Monday we found out that the West End was closed. Do you remember that performance on the Saturday? Do you remember thinking this could be our last one or did it just come from nowhere? Okay, so that one was, for me, it was a Friday. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't do the Saturday. It was quite an interesting thing for me. I didn't do the Thursday either because that was the day I got to perform for Prince Charles at a, an event, which was really fancy and awesome so it was a bit of a weird week that but that thursday when i was performing was the day they announced that broadway was closing Mm -hmm. and so i got an inkling that we weren't too far away regardless of that you know we've been saying for a week or so just backstage oh i think it's inevitable i think it's inevitable but the inevitability of it closing and it closing for this amount of time were we, we didn't even dream it it was like, oh, maybe it'll be a few weeks. Maybe to maybe max a couple of months. Max will be back in July, back, you know, in summer and, you know, the hot weather and the virus will go. So, no, I don't think anyone in, in any walk envisaged this. And you know, no one could have been prepared for, for, for this and what it's done for the theatre industry globally. Talk me through the Monday. So I'm assuming you'd gone to work as normal. You were, were you getting ready when, when you found out or what happened? We were, had our Monday notes. And so we were just in the stalls about to have notes. And then our company manager um, said, hey guys, this was after Boris had, had advised that people shouldn't attend the theater. And I think that was enough for our producers to go, okay, go home guys. And later we found out that we'd, we'd be, that would be the whole week um, and then we'd find out more and then it's just, it's where we are now, mate, yeah. 
after you had that initial conversation with the company manager, do you remember that journey home? How did you how did you feel? Was there an emotional goodbye with your castmates? Well, no one knew the full extent of it, and it was just sort of like, what's going on? And there was like a little bit of like, is it really safe to be a worker in town at the moment? This virus is really spreading, so it was sort of like, let's just get home. Like I didn't think to grab anything in my dressing room or anything. I was just like, let's just get home and be safe, and I'll just be with my partner and. And we'll get more info and it'll work itself out. So, you know, there was a few hugs at stage door or some elbows or whatever it was. And it was just like, this is crazy and weird and strange, but hopefully we'll see you all really soon. Since then, we're four or five months down the road. How have you reflected on your time in the show? Lots. There's nothing I'd change, really. Nothing at all. It's, it was... I know. Did you, did you see our cast? I didn't, sadly. Oh, dude. Do you know what? I, I should really confess something right now, and this is this is really bad. I've seen Phantom on Broadway. Yeah. I saw a, a UK touring production when I was six or seven in the 90s in Bradford, and I saw the 25th anniversary tour in 2011, but I never saw it in the West End. Oh, dude, well, you're missing out. The brilliant original. I know, I know. Anyway, to answer your question, there's nothing I'd take back. If I look upon it, I can reflect upon it with just immense joy. Look, I hope that I please get back to normal. I get back to doing it again. Like I said in my final audition to the creative teams, and we talked about this show and its length and the places around the world that, you know, I've auditioned for it. I'd still do it anywhere in the world. There's nothing like the magic of playing the Phantom, putting on the mask and becoming him. And it was and is just, as I said earlier, like the most wonderful and profound and fulfilling theatrical experience in my life. So I, I, hope, I hope to not relive that, but continue to live that in, in, in some way. Gratitude is basically what I feel immensely. That's probably the, the main word. And, and pride that I took a big risk and, you know, like there was work that I could have done and stuff, but I was like, no, nah, I'm going over to London. I'm going to audition for this thing on a whim and maybe move over to London. And so I'm grateful for the universe and, and, you know, everyone involved in that show and giving me the opportunity, but I'm, I'm proud of myself for going for it. It is such an iconic part. And every moment in that show has such an iconic image, you know, music of the night, the title number. To be in it, what was the moment that took your breath away the first time you did it? And was there a particular moment in the show that you kind of felt a little bit overwhelmed by that you got to do it? Great question. When we did a full run, like with, with everything in place, what we call the journey, which is the title song, when we come around on the boat. Now, you've seen it on stage three times. Yeah. You've seen that image countless times but you've never seen it from the point of view of looking out to the audience. And that is the coolest thing where you can, you see it in reverse as being, being the Phantom or Christine. Well, not Christine, cause she's looking at back at me. So Phantom's really the only person who gets to see that image of the candles coming up. Yeah. All that smoke and whatever else. And then beyond that, the conductor, and then beyond that, a packed Her Majesty's theatre. That was epic. So that one, and then the second part of your question, probably um, coming down on the angel. In the All I Ask of You reprise, that bit? Yeah. 
I mean, he sits in a place of all of us and all of our sort of shadow and darker selves. And that's a part of us that we, you know, that's a part of the corners of our lives that they're cobwebs that we don't ever want to sort of dust up. And being him, you get to go into all those icky corners and, and play with feelings and uncomfortable shit that humans dare not go. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that sexuality, all the abandonment, the loneliness, all of that is deeply entrenched within all of us. We all feel lonely. We all feel deeply sexual. We all, but there are things that we can't communicate or where society tells us not to sort of go there. They're almost taboo, some of that stuff to, to communicate. Even some, we find it hard, especially as white Western men, to say to your friend, oh, I feel really alone or I feel really lonely. I feel abandoned as a person. Like you feel uncomfortable saying that because men aren't allowed to be that vulnerable. You know? So he goes into all those places and to play him is both empowering and cathartic. Okay, that's interesting. In which moment do you find the most catharsis? Ah, the, the final layer. All of that pain and everything. And then for me, the way I played it, to rush back to the portcullis as she and Raul go by and sort of grab at a final effort to take some of her energy. All of that shit. Like, it's, it's so dramatic. And I feel like more often than not, literally pretty much every time, unless I was like really sick, I tried to leave nothing left behind. Like I just wanted to, it gives you as the, as the actor, the opportunity to completely purge. And so if you're having a bit of a rough day or you've got stuff going on in your life, you're like, can't wait to go to the theatre because in the final hour, I got 15 minutes of getting this stuff out. <laughs> That's so interesting. And actually thinking about it, moments like that where you really get to just give yourself 100% to that kind of raw energy are really quite rare. Yeah, because often when you do that, it's a bit too much. Mm. Like when you watch that, like, but everything that's led up to it and not just Phantom's journey individually, but the whole cast supporting the Phantom, it takes a whole company to make his performance wonderful. They have to really fear him for him to have the payoff at the end to be able to be allowed to go there with such extreme. If any of this show is pedestrian, if he comes out there, really having not really known as the actor what they've been doing, because I've been backstage, if anyone's been pedestrian, if I come out there in the final layer and give it everything, it sort of was like, oh, that didn't make sense with the rest of this show. Sure. It all has heavy stakes. That's what's great about Phantom is there aren't pedestrian moments that no one asked anyone what they had for dinner. <laughs> but also the darkness is so constant. It would be so difficult to not feel intimidated by that and, and scared, you know, yeah. having seen it as a child and having seen it as an adult, I still got that same feeling of, I am terrified of this person standing on stage in a mask and a big hat. Yeah, but it's terrifying and equally sexy. Yeah, I'm not sure I felt that as a six-year-old, but definitely oh, as, an not as a six-year-old. <laughs> six but that's what's compelling and interesting about him. And, I mean, that's what sort of lures her in in many ways. What was another really cool moment, I know it's a bit of a tangent, but in rehearsals, the first time we took all the lights out and just used the set candles and stuff for doing the first layer, the music of the night scene, mm -hmm. 
that changed everything. That darkness and sudden feeling of being underground in those sort of sewers, in a lair and energy or the, the hearing some in some way of just all these little like, bits of water popping and the feeling of, of like stone ground and, and, you know, the first time I've seen her in that context, you know, really seen her, but the darkness of not really seeing her, it's sort of like making love in a dark room. Like it's, it really is like, you know, so much of music theatre is about desire and love and sexuality. What makes Phantom so wonderful is we really see and feel that in this part of the show. Yeah, they don't try and dress it up. It's very, no, it's very honest in that It's feeling. not like Jimmy singing What Do I Need With Love about Millie and that really modern Millie. Slightly darker. <laughs> Plenty more from Josh still to come. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Backstage With podcast. If you're enjoying it, please leave us a rating and a review while you're here. And do subscribe to hear plenty more interviews with your favourite theatre artists. So much has happened in the last couple of months. So much chatter online about what's going to happen, you know, the future of the show. When did you first hear rumours of the show being permanently closed and replaced? It was just that one article that said it was permanently closed. And to be honest, yes, I was devastated and heartbroken, but I'm really glad that, you know, pretty much straight away, a spokesperson from the Phantom of the Opera Company came out and said a brand new physical production of Maria Bjornsson's original design will go ahead at a newly renovated Her Majesty's Theatre on Haymarket. And it just put all questions to bed. We know exactly what that's going to be. The theatre's going to look amazing. The set's going to be brand new. And, and to be honest, like for the last month of the show, my performance, I couldn't be in the Angel because it was broken and needed work done and was unsafe. So this set is almost 34 years old. Of course it needs refreshing and update. And really, they've chosen a great time knowing that it's going to be Maria's original design. A freshened version of that design is, I think, going to you know, keep Phantom going, hopefully for another 30 plus years. So I think it's exciting news for Phantom fans to know that it's, it's going to be what it is and that they're investing that much time and energy and effort and finances into it and that Lord Floyd Webber and Sir Cameron have just taken out a 50-year lease on Her Majesty's. So the intention is let's keep this baby going for longer than a mousetrap. Absolutely. The toing and froing of, of that before before we got the, the the full information of it, the picture of the chandelier outside of the theatre. How, how did that feel when you saw that? Yeah, I mean, shaken, but it's all, all of those things become absolutely null and void when you get the real information, because all of that was just hypothesis and people making or coming up with rumours or spreading rumours or and so clarity is what we always need, especially in these really troublesome times people always uh, are trying to hang on to or, or play around with with drama i guess where there's fact and clarity is where we do really well we've noticed that all through covid when we know we're, we have to wear masks inside we don't do the thing of is a mask on or it's law if you don't do it you'll be fine that's what we need as a society so we got clarity and with the clarity was as i said actually really exciting clarity yeah, to think that, that Phantom could possibly run 
like if it's if it's a 50 year lease and they continue it on for like 83 plus years like that's insane i hope that when i get to my deathbed phantom still running that would be that would be incredible really interesting point there that you made about not being able to come down on the angel i didn't know that so the set is nearly 34 years old like you said the oldest original set and the original production in the West End now. Did it feel like you were performing in an antique? Oh, no. I felt like you were performing in a part of history. I love that. Like that and, and I was really aware of that because you've got people in this company. Bob, who plays the violin, was there on opening night on the 9th of October, 1986. You've got other members of the company who've been there since the late 80s. You've got... Philip Griffiths, who is in the Guinness Book of Records for being the longest-serving cast member of any show in the history of the world. He's been there since January 1990. Oh, my God. Or 1991. He was about to come to 30th. Like, he has done probably 10,000 performances or something. So you are with people who have lived Phantom, the entire journey of Phantom. So you didn't feel like you're an antique at all. You just felt like you were sharing in the most incredible piece of music theatre history. That's the coolest part. What did you do instead of coming down on the Angel? How did they make that moment work? Out of, out of a box, sort of <laughs> sprawling out of a box. Yeah. Brilliant. You know, it's, it's a West End show with an A-grade, A-plus grade tech team. But the, the fact is, you know, it, it could move. You know, you've still got like manual things it could it could move more things could move with automation be be cleaner be quicker you know and that i think that'll only serve the show in a in a really positive way Mm -hmm. i mean obviously with even with automation nowadays things can still go wrong were there any things in your six months what was your experience of any sort of gaffes or or bloopers gaffes yeah final layer phantom gets the candle and goes on the noose to release raul my candle flame nicked Danny Whitehead who played Raoul just underneath the eye. Like it was a centimeter away from getting into this man's eye, poor Danny, and literally cut him open. Like the flame cut him. He was bleeding from just underneath the eye. Yeah. So Danny was off for the best part of a week. God, don't play with fire. No. Um, no. Also my highlight, people who are listening won't be able to see this unfortunately, but I'll try and explain it with this sort of with enough drama for you to understand also in that very same moment the noose didn't work one night so how does phantom keep raul locked he gives it street fighter style like like imaginary flame thing that pushes him up onto the portcullis and like it was it was some of the worst, some of my worst theatre acting I could ever come up with. But in the moment, I was like, I'm going to whoosh you with the power of my hands. Um, it was, you know, it was sort of like Iron Man, the way he goes up, but I didn't have fancy lights in my palms. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was terrible. Like Darth Vader style. Yeah. All of these action hero villainous or, you know, heroes um, have powers like that enable them to do that. Phantom suddenly had that same power. He just didn't have all the CGI to make it look cool. Good on you for trying. <laughs> I tried gallantly. It was awful. 
Any other interesting ones? No, not really. Oh, my, my pants split. That's a story I've told a few times. Really, really badly in past the point of no return. And I'm wearing a cowl, the sort of, you know, robe that's covering me. And then, so they split. And then my dresser tried to side stage pin it, but couldn't get the pins in. So I did this, the final air sort of semi showgirl style, which was brilliant, which is, yeah, I had to sort of change blocking just to like cover up. And yeah, I had a lot of moments on the, on the throne in the, in the lair where I was like really giving it like showgirl one leg over the other to try and cover up. It was, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Giving the phantom a bit of camp. I love that. Yeah, That's brilliant. I mean, dude, have you seen those hats? Have you seen, he has a cape, he suits. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He does a lot of sculpturing. Like the guy's got camp, like there's camp stuff going on there. So Even more camp. Yeah, I'm, I just made him physically more camp than he, he ought to be. Musically, this show is is obviously extraordinary. Ridiculously extraordinary. What's the highlight for you? Ah, highlight. Well, obviously just hearing the overture. Like as soon as that overture kicks in, you're like, it's go time. I love that. And it's so, it's just really thrilling. I'm often in the makeup chair or just finishing my makeup when that's happening. So it's just really thrilling. Just to sing myself, is that, part of the question yeah it is now <laughs> anything anything whether it's a score like it's just it's one of those shows that has so many like little tidbits like the the twisted every way motif or or the, yeah. the string section just before wishing you were somehow here again there are so many little snapshots of music that are just so euphoric well, you took one away from me but oh i'm sorry yes the string section before wishing is definitely definitely one of them that's just Absolutely beautiful. I think the final layer is probably some of the most genius writing going around. The fact that you get everyone's story. It's, it's amazing stuff coming together. It's Charles's lyrics, Andrew's score. It's where it's set. It's, the di- it's Hal's direction. You know, all those different triangles that he has on stage for them, different shape mm-hmm. ones, all that references to love triangle, just genius. But for me, actually... To sing, the most exciting bit is after she sings her big fat top E, going straight onto the organ. I have brought you. That is that is the most exciting thing because it's so wild. It's like the animal just comes out. He's so affected by this singing lesson that he's given and the extraordinary level to which she goes to, um, and the animal comes out of him and then he sort of catches the animal and then the lesson continues. What happens if you're not feeling hundred percent and you've got to go out and do that? Cause it's, it's a relentless role in terms of those high bits. How on earth do you get well, through it? If you're not feeling tip top? I am lucky that I'm not like a baritone baritone. I'm sort of like, like a meteor tenor. So like those A flats, the you know where you long to be that was never a note that i think about there was only once where i literally lost my voice in just after warm-up when i was in in getting my makeup done and there was no way out and i had to do the first act that it was just a nightmare but you know other than that oh, and, and the birthday show which i was sick on too but but you you know i i felt like there's sometimes you can just push through 
like, but there's other times where you, you just go, I'm not even going to go to work because there's no way I'm going to be able to push through here. Just about, I, I guess it's probably different for everyone who's played it, but it's just sort of knowing your instrument and knowing your body and, and giving it grace and, you know, not getting trapped up in the egoic components of performing and going, I must go out there and do it. It's my role and all that. Like the show is bigger than the individual. <laughs> we know that a lot of the original creative team are sadly no longer with us, but if you could sit down with all of them around a table and have dinner or whatever, what would you say to them? Do I have to use words? No. It would be the longest, most, and screw it, this is not happening in COVID, this is post-COVID. Uh, it would be the longest and most, like, squeeziest, full-breathed hugs that a, one person could give another. You know those hugs where you get everything across without saying a word? It's one of those, one of those hugs. They all get one of them. <laughs> because I, I, I can't express my thanks and gratitude in in words for what they created and therefore gave me the opportunity to be a part of words. Yeah. They won't suffice. So I think I have to, I have to go to hugs. I'm pretty tactile. <laughs> I feel like Maria Bjornsson would really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Julie would, I feel like how probably would too. I think they're all such creative, um, eccentric types that, that, um, that there's no way they weren't somewhat tactile and <laughs> given the right moment. Sure, sure. I'm sad that I never met any of them. I, it's yeah, really sad. I mean, they are they're just gods, absolute gods, aren't they? And goddesses. Absolutely. Well, I hope that when the brilliant original reopens with its rejuvenated set and, and beautiful new theatre, I hope we get to see you back as the Phantom and I will finally right the wrong and come and see the show in the West End. Woo! <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's like, oh, it'll always be there. I'll get round to it. And then it's gone. And you're like, oh. Well, I promise if and when that happens, we'll clink glasses backstage. I would love that. That would be great. Done. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been fascinating to hear your insight. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks for all the great questions. That's it for this week's episode. Next week on the podcast, I'll be chatting to the first actress in the world to have been cast as Elphaba and Glinda in Wicked. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss Backstage with Louise Dearman. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Listening.